Please remain standing as you're able and as we come before God's word, very likely we're doing what Jesus and the disciples would have done by reciting what uh, he called the Shema and what later he would say was the great commandment. Please follow after me as we follow after him. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning on Christ the King Sunday when we celebrate the kingship of our Lord is from Luke's account of the transition to power. This is chapter 23, beginning in verse 33 and going through 43. When they got to a place called the Skull, they crucified him with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And they divided his clothes among them as they cast lots for them. And he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now the people stood by watching, but the leaders and rulers of the people sneered at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah, God's chosen son. And the soldiers mocked him as well, and they took wine mixed with vinegar and gave it to him to drink. And they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. For a sign had been written above him, and it said, This is the king of the Jews. Now, one of the criminals who was hanging with him hurled insults at him as well and said, If you are God's son, save us. And save yourself. But the other criminal said, Don't you fear God? Seeing that we are all under the same punishment, but we justly so, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, in these past couple of weeks, as we go through a transition of power here in the States, uh, we notice that people are paying particular attention to uh, the first acceptance speech and the other words that have come from the president-elect, and also to the president-elect's selection of people to be in certain positions of power and even on the cabinet. I say all that to not make a political comment so much as to say, if you've been watching that from one side or the other, then you are ready to read the 23rd chapter of Luke's gospel. Because here's what Luke knows. Writing some 40 years after the death of Jesus, Luke knows that what happened on that Good Friday was in every way and in every sense a transition of power. The power went from Caesar to Jesus. The power went from sin to wholeness. And the power changed hands from death into life. And so to describe that transition, he will look for things and describe the very things you and I are looking for. What is the new person in power saying? What is one of their first acts that they're going to carry out? And if you follow this, you begin to get a picture of what this new administration under Jesus will look like. Now, first, let me set the stage for you. It has been a bitter contest between the power of sin and death and Caesar himself 
and Jesus and his kingdom. It has been so bitter that the Romans have brought out uh, the biggest surprise, the biggest club that they have to use. It's called crucifixion. And they are in the process of crucifying Jesus in our story this morning. Crucifixion, we could talk a lot more about it on Holy Week, but suffice to say, it was about as cruel a thing as they could do to you physically, because not only were they twisting your limbs, but they were, uh, they were if they were good at it, helping you to die very, very slowly and in a great deal of pain through asphyxiation. But it had the double meaning of not just a cruel and terrible death, but it was the ultimate insult. Because the Romans put those who wanted to wrest power away from the Romans on these crosses. And so it was their way of saying, oh, you wanted to come into power, did you? You wanted to move up. Well, enjoy your new position as we lift you up. And there was this insult that's implied. And people in Jesus' day would be very familiar uh, with the crosses. They would line the road that leads into Jerusalem. They had seen hundreds if not thousands of crucifixions when Jesus was a boy and there had been a revolt against Herod and the Roman Empire that supported him over taxation. So they knew what these... uh, what these crosses meant. People of Rome wouldn't have been surprised either. The, right, the roads to Rome were lined also on, with crosses and on them the bodies of those who attempted to somehow take power away from the Romans. And so the Romans in this power contest, it has been bitter and they have fought in very uh, powerful and deadly ways. But even in the midst of this transition, it was not enough for that to have happened. But as you see it take place in this 23rd chapter, Jesus runs into additional opposition. First of all, he runs into opposition from his own establishment. The leaders of his party, the Jews, you think they would support this Messiah, but they don't. And so uh, while the people stand by and watch, the leaders mock Jesus and basically said, "Ah, he came to save others, he can't even save himself. And then, of course, you would expect the ruling party, the opposing party, to deal with Jesus very cruelly. The soldiers do that. They gamble and cast lots uh, for his, uh, his clothes. Uh, they they uh, insult him as well. And then they offer him a glass of wine mixed with vinegar. I haven't tried that particular combination. I can't imagine it tastes very good. But here's the meaning behind it. Often when a new king comes into throne at their inauguration ball or banquet or dinner, they lift the glass of wine and toast themselves and drink it to their rule, which will go on and on and on. And so taunting Jesus, making fun of the transition of power that they don't believe is taking place, they give him this glass of uh, this of wine to drink. But they also do what Pilate, I guess, has instructed them to do uh, in, an, in a sign that's rather ironic because it's true, uh, and yet a sign that's meant to be sarcastic. They put the charges against him as, this is the king of the Jews. So he runs into opposition from the opposing party, the ruling party, and even from the people who would benefit most from his rule, the two outcasts. The thieves on the cross. And one of them begins to hurl insults at Jesus and basically says, save yourself and us with you. Jesus runs into this transition of power into great opposition. Now, the important thing to note this morning is what does he do when he is opposed? What does he do when uh, people seek to harm him? 
And the short answer is this. He does not do what the normal king or ruler who comes to power does. Jesus doesn't handle this the way other people handle it. Let's look at Jesus' own lifetime. When he was a baby, uh, some people said he was king, and that disturbed the king who was in power. His name was Herod. So remember how Herod did with, uh, dealt with that? Went to a place called Bethlehem, looked for all the babies two years and younger, and took care of them. The same way he took care of a number of his wives, who he thought was trying to oppose him. His uh, brother-in-law, who perhaps was the most able to rule his empire after he died, he, uh, a guy named Aristobulus, and he, and he killed him. Killed his own children, only left three, uh, Mo, Larry, and Curly, to run the empire when he died. Better known as Antip- Antipas, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. Um, but that's how what kings do when, when they come to power. They eliminate the opposition. Anyone who stood in their way, they get them out of the way. Uh, Caesar Augustus, better known as Octavian, had done the same thing. I uh, took care of Mark Antony and then took care of people who had opposed him. And so that was so surprising why he didn't kill King Herod, who was a friend of Mark Antony. But everyone else, everyone else who looked like they might have tried to do something to him, he eliminated That's just what kings do when they come to power. They eliminate their rivals. Happens in the Bible, too. It shouldn't among God's kings, but it did. Remember David? David was so magnanimous when when he took Saul's place and became king. The first thing he did, he didn't wipe out everybody who supported Saul. He said, is there any of Saul's family or any of Saul's friends who are around that I can celebrate and I can honor? That was amazing, and it was very, very gracious But then we get to David on his deathbed and he's meeting his son, Solomon. And he says to him, all right, here's a list of folks. And first thing you need to do is knock them off. And he gives Solomon a hit list. Says, get rid of them. If you've always tried, if you've ever tried to understand Solomon, who's uh, so wise and brilliant and so powerful and builds the temple. One way to understand him is he becomes everything that God did not want a king to be. When you look at Solomon, he ends up looking more like the Pharaoh uh, who had enslaved the people hundreds of years earlier than he looked like God's um, king and savior. So that's how Solomon rolled. And he comes into power, eliminating anyone who might have been a rival to his father. Now, of course, that's in the ancient world and nothing like that happens today. Well, about 10 years ago, Pastor Diane and I were visiting in Liberia. They were just uh, coming through the transition from the dictator Charles Taylor and, and we heard uh, pretty amazing stories of what Charles Taylor had done to those who uh, wanted to get in his way of coming to power. And then we walked in. And then even when uh, Taylor was run out of power, uh, he, he, we went into the Capitol building in Monrovia. And anything that wasn't literally weighed down by concrete, he took with him. That's just how rulers roll. That's what kings do. A number of us are going back to the African country Burundi where we go almost on an annual basis. And they have a democratically elected president. But if you were to look at the BBC and read the news, one of the concerns is the democratically elected president is now beginning to deal with his rivals who opposed him and didn't want him to run for a third term. That's just how they do it. That's how kings roll. That's how rulers act when they get into power. But Jesus, he didn't do any of this stuff. 
Surely he was tempted to do this stuff. I know it was a temptation because of this. In the uh, wilderness, remember, uh, Jesus is baptized and gets sent in the wilderness. And Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, jump off this building. If you are the son of God. And fast forward now to the cross and three people say, if you are God's son, if you are the king of the Jews, if you are the son of God do these things. It's the same temptation. But just as he did at the beginning of his ministry, at the end of his life, he refuses to yield. Jesus does not act the way a normal ruler and king reacts. He doesn't look to squash out opposition and deal harshly with those who have dealt harshly with him. He does something else entirely, and you know what he does right away when you look at his acceptance speech. Transition of power is being held in Luke 23. Among the first speeches he gives, he says this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then we read about all these clowns that now come into the picture. The rulers of the people, the soldiers, the criminals who don't know any better, even Pilate himself who made the sign. And the same word is over all of them. Forgive them. And then look, what's his first act? Who's his first appointment that's going to be a part of his transition into power? It's the guy hanging on the cross. Next to him, it's like, okay, uh, how about you? You come with me. He doesn't do what a normal king does. And just so we understand a little bit more about what Jesus is doing uh, with this man that's hanging on the cross. I think it's real interesting to go back to a story of Saul. Anybody remember Saul? He was David's predecessor. um, And he wasn't um, like real happy about David becoming king. Spent a lot of his time chasing David around, wanting to kill David, uh, uh, throwing spears at him, chasing him with his soldiers, that sort of thing. Well, uh, when, when it's obvious that the power is moving from Saul to David, Saul gets very concerned. And so he goes to consult the dead. And he conjures up the sleeping prophet Samuel, who's not very happy about being uh, raised from his sleep. And, uh, and in the lecture that Samuel, who's kind of ticked off, gives to Saul, he says this. He says, tomorrow you and your two sons will be with me. Well, sure enough, we go on and read the story, and in the next day, in a battle, Saul and his two sons die. Voila, David is king. David is both Jesus' descendant and ancestor, as it goes, Jesus being in the line of David. But interestingly, uh, this is the way the rabbis interpreted this passage, and, Dave, and Jesus surely would have known it. That when Samuel says to Saul, tomorrow you and your two sons will be with me, what he's saying is by being with me, you will be in what they call paradise, which is not floating around on a cloud or whatever, but it's a wonderful place, but it's like a holding area until all of God's stuff that God's going to do to make this a new uh, earth are going to happen. And paradise is why you wait for that stuff. And so basically it's a good place to be. But the way the rabbis interpreted this passage was by Samuel telling Saul, you and your two boys will be with me. That meant they would be in paradise where Samuel was. And that meant, most importantly, said the rabbis, that this bad king and his two even worse sons had been forgiven. 
When you go in Jesus' day and read the story about Samuel and Saul, they read it as a story of forgiveness. So one of the things Jesus is saying, he's already pronounced forgiveness on everybody from the cross, but just as his last act, he goes ahead and reminds this guy hanging next to him, you're forgiven. His first word in this part of the chapter, his last word, are both about the same subject, forgiveness. It seems, apparently that power rolls differently in God's kingdom than it does in Rome. Power in Rome is about squashing those who oppose, about um, uh, you imposing your will, getting revenge where you're able. Power in the kingdom of God tends to be about reconciliation, wholeness, and most of all, forgiveness. Jesus is moving in a different way. Why would he move in that way? Well, the only thing we can think of is that's how God moves. It's real interesting. Do you remember Joseph in the Bible had these uh, 11 brothers and 10 of them tried to kill him? I remember that story. I have two brothers. I get it. Um, But they decide eventually not to kill Joseph. They decide instead to make him a slave. They sell him into slavery. So you know the story. They think Joseph is gone forever. They're hungry. They go to Egypt. And lo and behold... There's Joseph, they don't recognize him, sitting in Pharaoh's house as second in command. Now, I don't know if you know how Pharaohs roll, but they roll with power in terms of violence, oppression, revenge. That's how they do things. And so it's fascinating that God puts under Pharaoh's own roof a man that looks at those who committed treason against him and betrayed him and says, I forgive you. And then later, in case we don't get the point, when uh, uh, the Egyptians uh, are oppressing God's people, um, God frees the people, they escape through the Red Sea. Now, this is not in the Bible, but again, it's commentary in the Bible. They sometimes try to fill in what they think are blanks. So it doesn't carry the weight of the Bible, but it's a fascinating story. When uh, in, they're escaping from Pharaoh's house through the Red Sea, uh, Pharaoh's soldiers pa- um, get caught in the mud, and of course, they drown. And apparently there's a viewing party in heaven, as the story goes. And, and the angels start celebrating this amazing victory, start high-fiving each other, and they're dancing around celebrating when God walks in. And God walks in, looks at them, and says, you're fired. They're like, what? You're fired. Why? God says to them, you fail to realize that the Egyptians are my children too. God was already teaching them about the power of forgiveness. And if you don't think that could have taken place, go to the prophet Isaiah who talks about all the nations that come into the house of the Lord, including, says Isaiah, the Egyptians. Say what? The very ones who oppressed us and made slaves of us will be in my house. No wonder Jesus quoted Isaiah, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So that's how God does things. God does things in ways of forgiveness. And so Jesus had done the same thing. Remember when uh, Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, decides he wants to be head of the class. So one day he asked Jesus a question. He said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? Now this is a setup, Peter thinks, because the normal rabbinical teaching is three times, which I think is kind of a lot. Three times for the same offense. Not just three times in general, it's three times for the same event. Same offense. So Peter says, seven like, go ahead and move me to head of the class now. Give me the ribbon, the trophy. But Jesus says, not seven. He says, 
70 times 7. And as you know, he doesn't mean 490. It's, it's, it's metaphorical. It's symbolic. It means you just keep forgiving them because that's how his kingdom does things. And if you want to see how a kingdom that doesn't do like that operates, then you go back to the cross, and this is what happens. You oppose me, I punish you. And Jesus is trying to show that you've got to be careful when you use punishment and revenge as your methods of power because you will unleash things that you cannot possibly understand or control. So go with me, those of you old enough. Remember the first Star Wars movie? What is it now? Four? Six? I don't know what the number is. I think it's four. The first one, uh, where Obi-Wan is trying to help uh, Luke escape, and so he's got to get the, the tractor beam down. So he tries to uh, occupy Darth Vader, former student. So Darth Vader tells Obi-Wan, you've become weak, old man, and in the lightsaber fight, says he's going to strike him down. And do you remember what Obi-Wan says? He says, if you strike me down... I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And follow the next two movies, and that's exactly what happens. And any time you resort to unforgiveness, to violence, to revenge, you will unleash powers, I believe, the cross is telling you, that you cannot control. And your life will go spinning out of directions. And that's just not the way that you want to Live. It's not the way that God rules or lives. But as everything God does for us, it's also personally just not the way you want to roll through life. Imagine if personally you adopted the same habits as kings, and anytime somebody slighted you, you tried to get revenge. Anytime somebody did something you didn't like, you decided to get revenge. And pretty soon it's like putting books in a backpack. And you keep stacking them on, on top of the others that are already there and on top. And pretty soon, you're walking around with 50 pounds on your back. And it's no wonder that you feel a certain burden and tiredness and weariness when you go through life. And part of the source, I think Jesus would say, it may very well be unforgiveness. Why live like this? Jesus dies at Passover. Friends, Passover is about freedom. Why would God want us to live in ways that just put us enslaved to new pharaohs, the people who have hurt our feelings? Why live like that? What's to be gained? You probably heard the old story. I think it's like from 100 years ago. Two brothers uh, started a general store. And the first day, it's going great. And they are very busy, so busy, in fact, that one of the brothers uh, takes money that he gets paid, like $10, and doesn't have time to even put it in the cash register. He just puts it on top and goes about his day. Well, at the end of the day, he goes as they're trying to even things out, and he doesn't see the $10 there anymore, so he says to his other brother, did you find the $10 and put it in? And the brother said, what $10? He said, but the $10 I put on top of there. You saw it. I didn't have time. Did you put it in there? And he said, no, I never saw this $10. And he said to his brother, you cheat me over $10 on our first day? And the brother said, no, I never saw the $10 you're talking about. Well, I can't work with a liar and a thief. And so the brother made plans, and they divided the store in two. And amazingly, on each side of the store, with a wall in between, they sold the exact same stuff for 15 years. Lived next door to each other, and they put, for the first time, a fence between the two. I can't live next to a liar and a thief. Fifteen years later, the brother who thought uh, he had been um, lied to and stolen from was running a store. And a man came and said, uh, uh, 
sir, have you been at this store from the beginning? He said, yeah, we've been open 15 years. He said, I was here the day you were opened. He said, and I, 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 I need to give you something. What's that? He said, and he gives him a $10 bill. And he said, you were so busy that day and I was so hungry. I knew no one would notice. I, you wouldn't miss it. And I took this $10 so I could eat for that week. And I needed to give it back to you. And not only that, what's the most expensive thing you have in the store? I'll buy it. And the brother began to tear up. And, and he's like, don't cry, it's just $10 and then whatever you're selling me. But that's not what the brother's crying about. He's crying about 15 years. Over 10 bucks. Wasn't it several elections ago, ago that... Um, they made the pronouncement, it's the economy, stupid. I wonder if in this story it was the economy that made them stupid. That they would choose division because of money. I've chosen division for far less than $10. For somebody who said something I took the wrong way or somebody who didn't say something they should have or somebody who treated my kids in a way I didn't think that. You can just name it. And I start working on the division. And I put another brick in the pack. And that's just no way to live. It's no way to run a country. It's no way to run a church. It's no way to run a society. It's no way to run your life. Do you know that in the New Testament, the word for forgiveness is a word picture? It means to untie a knot. And a knot that is untied is more free and stronger than before. And that's what Jesus wants for us. Politically, theologically, but most of all, personally. A life of forgiveness, which is a life of freedom.